Father, you know that the, uh, the verse that's been on my mind the last couple of days is one that uh, a lot of us in here know. Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all thine heart, the old King James says. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. But acknowledge him in all thy ways and he will direct thy paths. It's hard for us to trust you with all our heart. It's just a battle because we're not perfect. We want to trust you. And you have proven yourself faithful over the years to us. And sometimes we get angry with ourselves because we wonder why we don't trust you more. But it's just because we're human and sin still dwells in us and we have to fight off unbelief. But we are grateful for what you have done in our lives. Your faithfulness. You have never broken a promise. Sometimes we don't trust you because we don't quite get what you're doing. That's why that says, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not to your own understanding. And Lord, I've been trying not to depend on how I understand things. Because when I do, I get myself in trouble. Uh, I cannot know what, what it is you're doing. And I remember reading one of the old the old guys who said so often we're like a blind man that needs help getting across a busy street. And when someone comes to take our arm and escort us across the street, would it not be foolish for the blind man to begin, to begin giving directions and orders to the man who can see? Yet that's what we do. We're blind, we're clueless, we don't know what the heck we're doing, yet we make all these plans and then we don't understand when you don't honor our plans. It's just a perpetual thing we deal with. We, we get ourselves in trouble, or we find ourselves in trouble, and then we want to write the prescription. But what we need to learn to do is to wait upon the great physician. For you know the prescription. We don't. We, we know very little about our situations. We know what's in front of us and what's immediately ahead of us, and we know the pressure we're feeling. But you know about 10 million things about our situation. We have no capacity to know or think or assimilate. So how foolish it is for us blind men to be telling you how you should work in our lives. And if we don't understand, we don't understand we just trust your character. And as best we can, we want to acknowledge you in all our ways. We thank you that Jesus is our Savior. We thank you that he keeps saving us. We thank you that your grace never runs out. That when we fall short, and we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But we thank you for the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy that just keeps flowing. It just keeps coming. And if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What, what a great Savior and what a great gospel that we have. It's not on us. Jesus took it on him. And we thank you for the promise that you will direct our path. Uh, 
some of us, Lord, our compass is clear, and we know our next step. We know the next couple of steps, perhaps. You've made it clear to us. When we have those seasons of life, we're thankful for them. There are other times the compass is clouded, or the compass, that needle, is spinning, and we can't figure out what to do next. Well, that's all right, because you are the one who will direct our path. The Lord is my shepherd, David said. So tonight we acknowledge that we all have need of you. We need leadership, we need encouragement, we need forgiveness, we need hope, we need help. We are needy men, but you are sufficient for whatever it is we bring tonight. Instruct us now, give us teachable hearts. Help us to take seriously what you teach us. This isn't a game. It's about life and death and eternity. So may we hear well and apply well your words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this semester we are going to study the life of David. Now, I want to say this to you. You could spend 40 years studying the life of David. There is so much in the scriptures on David and his life and his, uh, his story. Uh, he gets a lot of pages in the Old Testament. Joseph gets a lot of pages. Uh, Moses gets a lot of pages. We, we have more biographical information on those three men probably than anyone else in the Old Testament. <clears throat> then you add in the Psalms that he wrote, most, almost half of the Psalms David wrote. There, there's a lot there. The, the way I want to approach this is I want to look at David's life, and we can't cover every event, but I want to look at David's life through the I want to look at David's life through the different people that, that God brought into his life at different times. Uh, we see a great leader like David. Uh, he was a monumental leader. He was a significant leader in all of history. But uh, no man is an island, and no man can function by himself, including David. And at key times in David's life, there were other men that God brought into his life. Sometimes they were there long-term, sometimes they were there short-term. But along the way, in order to accomplish the work that God had given for David to do, God would bring other men into his life, men with different gifts, men with different personalities, men with different skills, and he would use them in the life of David. That's true of uh, every leader. We have in here, uh, we have a bunch of leaders in here, because we have a bunch of men. And not all guys view themselves as leaders, but if you're a man, you're a leader. You're leading somebody, uh, because you're a man. It was Joe Aldrich who years ago said, all of God's people are equally precious, but not all of God's people are equally strategic. Men are strategic. You know why men are strategic? Because they're husbands, because they're fathers, because they're grandfathers. And it shouldn't surprise us that as we look around at our culture and we look at our nation and we see our nation in such deep trouble, so much of what is wrong with us is fatherlessness. And when the enemy wants to bring down a nation, he goes after the family. When he wants to bring down a family, he goes after the man. 
Because if you can remove a man from being responsible and remove a man from his God-given assignment and remove a, a man from being the man that God wants him and intends for him to be, all havoc breaks loose, you see. So men are critical. And in some way, shape, or form, you're a leader. Even if you're a young man, even if you're not married, even if you don't have kids, even if you're not a grandfather, you're a leader. Somebody's watching your life and you're influencing somebody. So what was true of David's life is true of your life. As you go through your life and God has a work for you to do, it's different from the guy sitting next to you or across from you because you're different. Everybody's different, and we're different by the design of God. But he's given us different personalities and different temperaments and different giftings and different skills and different assignments. But they're all valuable and they're all strategic. And just as he did in David's life, you see, David, as you look at the life of David, David had a supporting cast. So you. Uh, sometimes the people that God will bring into your life are very similar to the people that were brought into the life of David. You study any great leader, and there were other men that were brought into their lives at certain key times. Because without those key men at certain times, that leader could not have done the work which he was supposed to do. And that's all under the providence and the governing of God. Uh, maybe hands down, Winston Churchill was the leader of the 20th century. Um, he was a unique guy, had a conversation just before we started uh, about Churchill and about some other leaders who led in times of crisis. Uh, Churchill um, was very opinionated, and he was not afraid to give his opinion. And so Churchill, from time to time, would make a few enemies down the road of life. And uh, some of them would forgive and some of them would remember uh, a few statements that he would make about some of his political contemporaries. Of the Socialist Party leader and Prime Minister Clement Attlee, Churchill said, he is a modest man with much to be modest about. On another occasion, he said, of, uh, he said of Prime Minister Attlee, he is a sheep in sheep's clothing. <laughs> of another Prime Minister, Stanley Baldwin, and he didn't get along with Baldwin at all. Of Baldwin, he said, occasionally he stumbles over the truth, but hastily picks himself up as if nothing had happened. <laughs> another Prime Minister... Lord Balfour, Arthur James Balfour. Churchill said of Balfour, if you wanted nothing done, Arthur Balfour was the best man for the task. <laughs> there was absolutely no equal to him. <laughs> of Neville Chamberlain, Churchill said, he has a lust for peace. The great appeaser of Hitler that almost took Britain down in the early days of World War II. Later, in a more serious vein of Neville Chamberlain, the great appeaser, Churchill said, you were given the choice between war and dishonor. You chose dishonor, and you will have war. Man, he was right. Of John Foster Dulles. Now, you're an old guy, you remember John Foster Dulles. He was, he was the uh, Secretary of State the United States of America, between 53 and 59. Uh, of Dulles, two things Churchill said. 
Uh, he said, dull, doler, dullus. <laughs> These are too good not to read. Also of Dulles, Churchill said, he is the only bull I know who carries his own china closet with him. <laughs> he, had, uh, he had nothing but praise for uh, General Eisenhower, President Eisenhower. He said this, never have I seen a man so staunch in pursuing the purpose at hand, so ready to accept responsibility for misfortune, or so generous in victory. High words from a man like Winston Churchill. Um, there's at least one more in here that I had marked. Um, uh, there's two more. Of King Farouk of Egypt, who was overthrown by Nasser. You old guys, once again. Young guys, read history of King Farouk of Egypt. He said, King Farouk was wallowing like a sow in a trough of luxury. I, I, that meant a lot to me, personally. It obviously, it didn't touch your heart, but... <laughs> and then of T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia. Remember him? Churchill said, he was not in complete harmony with the normal. So Churchill made a few enemies along the line. But you know what's interesting? Uh, in fact, he made enough enemies that uh, in 1930, a group of uh, British politicians were visiting Russia and having dinner with Joseph Stalin. And as they were talking about the political uh, climate in Britain, he was asking about different leaders who could be a future prime minister. And the name of Winston Churchill came up. And Lady Astor, when his name came up, Stalin asked about Churchill. She said, Churchill, huh, he's finished. It was in 1930. And for all apparent, apparent circumstances, Churchill was finished. Because you see, in 1930, that began his wilderness years. That went all the way up to 1940. Because he had made so many, so many enemies over the years that he was put out to pasture politically. And he was at Chartwell, his estate. He was building brick walls. He was digging lakes. He was painting. But there were some people who trusted him and his judgment in the intelligence service of Britain. And no one else was listening, but they would feed him documents that would go straight to the prime minister and Churchill because they trusted his judgment. And he saw things before others saw him. So you see, did he make a few enemies? Yeah, but he also had a few friends. And you know the story. Uh, uh, Churchill was a giant of the 20th century, but he had a supporting cast. A case could be made that if Leo Amory did not make the speech that he made in the House of Commons, that Churchill never would have been prime minister. In fact, the situation happened in May of 1940. It was the early days of World War II. The Nazis were going into Norway because of the great iron deposits, 
and they needed that for their factories in Germany. Britain sent soldiers in, it didn't go well, and there was a crisis, and there was a debate in Parliament. Uh, Neville Chamberlain was the Prime Minister, once again the great appeaser. How many of you guys are familiar with Leo Amory? Uh, he was a writer, he was a uh, member of Parliament, very gifted man, uh, had been in school in the early years with Churchill. Um, but Leo Amory played a pivotal role in the life of Winston Churchill. Leo Amory played a pivotal role in World War II. He played a pivotal role in saving the nation of Britain. We tend to give that honor to uh, the leadership of Churchill. But it was Leo Amory and a speech he made in May of 1940 in the House of Commons that took Chamberlain out of power and put Churchill into power. Uh, the event is described in a book called Troublesome Young Men uh, that I read a few years ago by Lynn Olson. Uh, this is an interesting book. It's about, the, it's about the supporting cast that didn't get a lot of press, but they were young men that were in Parliament and were supportive of Churchill when he was in the political wilderness, and they believed he was the only one that could really save England, ultimately. And they worked on his behalf and put their careers at stake. Men like uh, Harold Macmillan, uh, men like Anthony Eden, and some others. But at this, crucial, at this crucial point, what happened was this Norway crisis really brought to a head the appeasement policies of, of Neville Chamberlain, the man who Churchill said had a lust for peace. He was going to take the nation down. And Leo Amory was not only a, a, a parliament member, but he was a scholar. And he was greatly troubled as they were questioning and going to have a debate later that day. And he was reading through some old English history. And he was reading through some old speeches. And at a critical point, he was finally given the floor after all of this debate. And as he got up, he said, the leaders of this new administration cannot be peacetime statesmen who were not well fitted for the conduct of war because they were talking about putting a committee together to oversee the war effort because they were about to lose their nation and be overrun. You know, the English Channel, there, there's a portion of the English Channel where the distance from France to southeastern England is only about 25 miles. The Nazis could have been over there like that. And so they're looking at, we got to come up with some kind of committee. we got to come up with some leaders. And he says, if we do, we got to have some new men who have new personalities and new temperaments. He says, compromise and procrastination are the natural qualities of a political leader in times of peace. Let me say that again. Doesn't this go with what we were talking about? Compromise and procrastination are the natural qualities of a political leader in times of peace but they are fatal qualities in war. Vision, daring, swiftness, and consistency of decision are the very essence of victory. Amory's voice grew quieter as he looked around the chamber. Somehow or other, we must get into the government men who can match our enemies in fighting spirit, in daring, in resolution, and in thirst for victory. It may not be easy to find these men. They can be found only by trial and by ruthlessly discarding all who fail. But find them we must, for we are fighting today for our life, for our liberty, for our all. Amory paused. The chamber was hushed. His fellow MPs focused on every word. And he thought of the quotation from Oliver Cromwell that he had jotted down that morning in his study. 
He had to decide now, should he read it? The words were scathing and even brutal. But as Amory studied the faces of his colleagues that night, he knew he could use them and carry the House of Commons along with him. He would quote these words of Cromwell with great reluctance. He said, because I am speaking of those who are old friends and associates of mine, but they are words which I think are applicable to the present situation. Amory gl glanced down at his notes, and he said, this is what Cromwell said to the long parliament when he thought it was no longer fit to conduct the affairs of the nation. His voice hardening, he fixed his gaze on the members of, of the cabinet, sitting stock still on the front bench. You have sat here too long for any good that you have been doing. I say to you, depart and let us have done with you. In the name of God, he says, as he looked at Chamberlain and the other members of his cabinet. In the name of God, go. The writer says, Amory's words ripped the air like bullets. The minister's faces whitened and loud gas swept the chamber. The sense of shock was almost palpable. One man said it was the most formal, formidable Philippic I have ever heard in my entire life. And within 48 hours, Chamberlain the appeaser was out. And Churchill, the wild man, was in. And it saved the nation. Churchill wouldn't have been in unless Leo Amory had the guts to stand up and say what nobody wanted to say. It could have cost him his political career. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan pastor, in his book, The Body of Divinity, made the statement that there are many tools in God's workshop of providence. Uh, just as a smith, a blacksmith, a silversmith, a coppersmith, uh, just as a, a smith has different tools in his toolbox, so God has different tools in his toolbox of providence and of governing our lives. He says this, suppose you were in a smith's shop and you should see there several sorts of tools, some crooked, some bowed, some hooked. Would you condemn all these tools because they do not look handsome or appealing? The smith makes use of them all for doing his work. Thus it is with the providences of God. They seem to us at times to be very crooked and strange, yet they all carry on God's work. Churchill had some men in his life that God put in his life that they were not his friends. They were his enemies. Uh, but most men, if you're teachable, you can learn from the critiques of your enemies. Uh, some, men, um, some men rub us the wrong way. Some men constantly criticize us. Some men grate on us. Some men criticize us and rule over us in our places of employment to the point that we have trouble sleeping at night. That's all part of the providence of God. They take their rough edges off. And God is in much, is, is in much control over those men. God is as much control over your enemies as he is over your friends. And we need both. As you go through life, you get good and bad intertwined. You have those that are on your team. You have those that are against you. Uh, Churchill had it. He had people that hated his guts, but he had people that, that there, were, there were all kinds of tools, not just hooks, not just files, not just coarse sandpaper. Uh, you had some that were levers. You had some that were pulleys. Sometimes God will use one person and give you favor of that person, and they will... Uh, 
they will lever you and catapult you and they will lift you up and you're somewhat stunned and shocked because you don't know them all that well. Have you ever had that happen to you? God just gave you favor with someone you didn't know all that well and God lifted you up? You probably have. See, those are tools in the, uh, in the workshop of God's providence. He uses all these different relationships for Romans 8.28. And we know, and do you know this? And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. All things aren't good. Being fired isn't good. Being uh, talked about behind your back isn't good. Uh, murder, bankruptcy uh, isn't good. But God causes all things to work together for good. In His providence, He does that. So our critics ultimately will be for our good. Our friends, those who support us, those that are in the foxhole with us, ultimately will be for our good. David had them all, you will have them all. When we begin looking at David's life, there are two figures that we immediately run into. The two men are Samuel and Saul. They were key players in the life of David. If you have your Bible, I'd like you to turn with me, if you would, to... Um, 1 Samuel 16. David was anointed out of the blue. I mean, this came out of nowhere. He was called in from working with his dad's sheep. And he's called in, and here is the prophet of Israel. Here is the judge of Israel. Here is the priest of Israel, Samuel, in his dad's home. And Samuel takes some oil, and what does he do? He anoints it, young David, and pours it over his head. It's all in chapter 16 of Samuel, 1 Samuel. Uh, he comes in, and he asks Jesse, and he looks for all the sons, and he looks at verse 6, and he looks at Eliab, and he says, this must be the Lord's anointed. Because you see, the Lord has said there's going to be another king. But it wasn't... Uh, the oldest boy, it, it wasn't him at all. And he looked around, although he was drawn, drawn to that boy, and he looks at all the sons, and he's checked in his spirit, and he says, do you have any other sons? Well, there's David. He's out with the sheep. His own father didn't think enough of David to bring him in. So they waited, and they called for David, and he came in. And what happens? Well, you read from verse 12 on down. Um, so he sent and brought him in. I'm in 1 Samuel 16. He was ruddy with beautiful eyes, handsome appearance, good-looking young guy. The Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. This is the next king. Then Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Everything has a context. When we jump into the life of David, we've got to start with two key figures. The first one is Samuel. Now, why is Samuel so important? Well, Samuel is an interesting guy because, you see, when David shows up, and really before him, the first king before David was Saul. But uh, there's a big, big contrast between Saul and David, as we're going to see. Uh, when you talk about leadership, uh, you know this is true. There are two kinds of leaders. There are authentic leaders and there are synthetic leaders. Authentic leaders are men who lead from the heart. 
Authentic leaders are men that have a higher purpose. Authentic leaders are men who are not there primarily to serve themselves, they're there to serve others. And they take that service seriously. Uh, Jesus said, uh, no man has greater love than this than he laid down his life for a friend. So that's why we honor men who died on the shores of Normandy or Iwo Jima or wherever it might be on Veterans Day. We honor those men because they were selfless. They died for others. Interesting that oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, those in the military who are selfless are under commander-in-chiefs who are selfish and who are manipulators. Not all, but some. You, you know that to be true. There are men who will sacrifice the lives of many in order to, in order to experience a political gain. And they sleep well at night. That man would be a synthetic leader. He cares more about himself than he does others. So in the world of politics, in the world of business, in the world of sport, whatever it is, whatever it is, in the world of ministry, there are authentic leaders, there are synthetic leaders. You got good apples, you got bad apples. It's everywhere. Leadership always is ultimately an issue of the heart. David is the model of the authentic leader. You say, yeah, but later on he really messed up. Yeah, he did. He really messed up. And so have you and so have I, just in different ways. Haven't we? Yes, we have. It's amazing any of us are saved. The amazing grace of Christ. And if it wasn't for the grace of Christ, those who we think have done worse things than we have done, and perhaps they have, wasn't for the grace of God restraining us, we'd be there. Because we have the same capacity and the same capability in our hearts. I'm not a mass murderer. Yeah, but you could be. The grace of God didn't restrain you. Because we've all got the potential within us. Thank God for the restraining power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And thank you, Lord, that, he, that you give us new hearts and new minds. And you regenerate us by your Spirit. We all have the potential because we're all born in sin. So David was a great sinner. But he also had a great love for God because he was known as the man who was after God's own what? Heart. You see, leadership is always an issue of the heart. Christianity is always ultimately an issue of the heart. Always. It's a heart issue. And the heart is you. The heart is the, is the mind. It's the will. It's the emotions. It's you. It's the guts of you. It's not an external religion. But it's an internal relationship with the living God. And wanting to know Him. And, and live under His authority. And follow Him. And you trust Him. You trust in Him alone for your salvation. For your sustenance for your future, for your time on the earth. It's always a matter of trust from the heart. That's Christianity. Can it be faked? You bet. And some of us have done it very well. But then through grace, he got us out of that and got a hold of our hearts. Now what's interesting about uh, the life of David David's the authentic leader, but before him you've got um, Saul. Saul is the uh, model of the synthetic leader. I'm going to talk about him tonight. 
but I want to back up a little bit because Saul was the first king, David was the second king, then Solomon's going to come along and he's going to be the third king. So what's happening in the history of Israel is that Israel, for the first time, is going to have kings. It started with Saul. Now, who was it that anointed the first two kings of Israel? Samuel. Uh, Samuel was the king maker. Now, what's interesting about Samuel, flip back to 1 Samuel 3. What's interesting about uh, Samuel you know, last uh, fall, we looked at, uh, we looked at uh, the book of Boaz, the book of Ruth, if you were in here. And that all occurred during the time of the judges. And if you back up one book behind Ruth, we'll see you got Samuel, then you got Ruth. And then if you keep going backwards, you get, um, gosh, my mind's not working tonight. You get judges, the time of the judges. And the time of the judges was a bad time. Oh, you keep backing up, you get through judges, and then you go to Joshua. What was happening in Joshua? Well, Joshua, that was a great time because they were going into the promised land to take the promised land after waiting for 40 years. So it was a time of victory. It was a time of uh, celebration. It was a time of uh, uh, prosperity. And at the end of the book, Joshua says he's going to die. And he says, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Each of you guys are going to have to figure out what you guys are going to do. And you know, most of them did. They started serving idols, which took them into the book of Judges. And what happened is, that was a time of moral and spiritual decline. They just kept getting worse and worse and worse and worse. I mean, it can't get any worse. And it keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. The last of the Judges was Samuel. So there is a transition from the Judges to a monarchy. There is a transition from the judges to the kings, and the guy who is the transition maker, the guy who, in a sense, if you will, took the judges out and put the kings in, was Samuel. First Samuel 3 notes, uh, oh, and if you know the story of Samuel, his mother's name was Hannah. She was barren. In the early chapters, you'll read about it. She couldn't have a baby. The Lord favored her. She had a child. She named him Samuel. She dedicated him and took him to the temple. And he was raised in the temple under Eli. And what happens, it says in 1 Samuel 3, verse uh, 19, Thus Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fail. Watch this. All Israel from Dan, even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. He was the spiritual leader of the nation. That's who Samuel was. So, um, it was a time of transition. Now, you've got to ask this question. Why were they transitioning? They had judges, now they're going to have kings. Why are they going to have kings? Good question. Glad you asked. Look at First uh, Samuel chapter 8. Actually, let's pick it up in 7. First, first Samuel 7, verse 15. Now Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He used to go annually on a circuit. You guys, you remember hearing about the Methodist circuit riders? In the early days of John Wesley? John Wesley had a method. They'd go in and preach the gospel. They'd get a group of Christians together, usually a small group, and they'd, they had a method. They'd get a, a group of Christians, they'd get a little church going, and it was usually pretty small. And uh, they didn't have enough money for a pastor. So what they would do is they would have these Methodist circuit riders. 
And a guy would have like a, you know, it's sort of like a paper route. You know, you do the same thing every day or every month. You ride the circuit. You're in this county, and that's your circuit. And then this guy, this is your circuit. And the old Methodists, they'd be here on Sunday, they'd be here on Monday, they'd be here on Tuesday, and those suckers would just ride. John Wesley rode on horse. He would ride several thousand miles a year on a horse. And he would write in his journal, and he would do a study on the horse as he's... As he's uh, he was texting as, as he was writing, is, is, is essentially what he was doing, which is really not often found in church history, but that's what he was doing. He was making use of his time. He would ride a circuit, that's, and it all started. Where did he get that? He got it from Samuel. He used to go annually on a circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then his return was to Ramah, for his house was there. That's where the guy lived. For there he judged Israel and he built there an altar to the Lord. Okay, so he's the last judge. Well, why was he the last judge? Well, that wasn't the original plan. He thought his boys were going to be the judges. Look at chapter 8. Now it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his son judges over Israel. Verse 3. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. They were synthetic leaders. Their father was an authentic man of God. But unfortunately, his boys weren't. They could do the drill. They could do the circuit riding. They knew how to serve communion. They knew how to baptize, to put it in modern times. They knew how to take an offering. They knew how to get a faith promise out of a group to build a building. But they didn't know the Lord. They were synthetic leaders, not from the heart. Okay? What a tragedy. So that presents a problem. Verse 4, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, which I'm sure he appreciated. It was true. He had some miles on the tires. Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now watch this. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. Notice the motivation here. They wanted a king. Why did they want a king? What's it say? So we can be like all the nations. What nations? The nations that are around them. Well, the nations that are around them are godless nations. But this was a wicked time. This was the book of the Judges. This was the time of the Judges when every man did what was right in his own eyes. And when every man does what's right in his own eyes, he doesn't want to be under any kind of authority. Does he? And who is the ultimate authority in the world? God. Why is it that Israel didn't have a king? Because God was their king. That's why they didn't have it. All the other nations, be careful in your own life of looking around and wishing that you had something that all of your friends or acquaintances have and you don't have it. Oftentimes, God will withhold from you something that for others is legitimate, but he won't let you have it. And you say, well, I don't understand that. Of course you don't understand it. His ways are not our ways. Well, they have it, and he has it, and he has it, but I don't have it. Yes, you don't have it. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. You might get it later, but you don't have it now. Well, don't worry, you're sick. Don't, don't worry yourself sick over it. What was that Proverbs 3 verse? Trust in the Lord with all... I, I memorized it as a kid in the old King James. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not on your own understanding. See, well, I don't get this. I don't understand it. Exactly. You don't. So give yourself a rest, man. Chill out. You're not going to understand it. You're not going to comprehend it. All you need to know that a higher authority who knows what's best 
and who has all wisdom and has your best in mind knows what he's doing and you don't. So trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Don't lean on your understanding, but acknowledge him in all your ways. The stuff that you know that you should be doing, keep doing it. Don't touch sin with a 10-foot pole. Ask God to keep you from pride every day and arrogance. Keep me close to Christ. Protect me from me. Help me to kill sin in my life. Help me not to excuse it. Better men than me have gone down. You call out to him. Acknowledge him in all your ways and what? He will direct your path. You don't have to get it. You don't have to understand it. You have to trust. Right? It's a Christian life. Why why are we going to have a transition to kings? They wanted to be like the other nations. Richard Phillips says, and by the way, you're starting to hear the word in the, uh, in the newspapers now. You're starting to hear the word theocracy. Interesting it would come up. And there's been a discussion as of late that maybe we should examine more carefully the religious views of these uh, candidates. Now, I'll be real honest with you. The only ones that I'm aware that they want to examine the religious views of are Christians. I'm not hearing that about other groups. In fact, if you were to inquire about other groups, you'd get yourself in a hot full of trouble. Anyway, just thought I'd share that with you. We shouldn't be surprised. Jesus said, in the world you'll have tribulation. Blessed are men, blessed are you and men persecute you. Part for the course. Established through Moses as a theocracy. You know what that means? It means God rules. He's their king. Israel was to stand apart from the surrounding nations by the fact that it had no king but God himself. That's what made Israel Israel. God is our king. Yeah, this guy is a king, and they got a king, and they got a king, and they got King Farouk, and they got this guy in Sennacherib, and all these guys, but God's our king. There's a king that's coming, King Jesus. He's our king. But see, that's not good enough for these guys because these guys want to be like everybody else. So that's where the whole king thing comes from. Uh, One of the worst things that ever happened to you is for God to give you everything you want. That's Romans 1. And they were given over. And they were given over. When God curses a nation or a people, he gives them over to what they want. That's why you've got to be real careful about what you want. That's why we're always safe when we pray what Jesus prayed, not my will, but what? But thine be done. Man, that is the safest place in all of the world. Okay. So they're rejecting Samuel here. And then in verse 7, God says this. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. This is a serious transition. It is a nation saying, we do not want God to be our king. We want a human king. We want to be like everybody else. That's serious stuff. So therefore, they're going to get a king, and his name is going to be Saul. I want to give you tonight one, two, three, four, five, six, if I've got enough time. I want to give you six traits of Saul. There's a whole lot of stuff about this guy. I'm going to try and nail six for you tonight.
you look at 1 Samuel 9, 2. 1 Samuel 9, 2. Actually, let's pick up 9, 1. Just to get, it's just one more verse. be good for us. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. Now, Kish... Kish is the man who is the father of Saul. Verse 2. He had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man. Now listen to this. There was not a more handsome man than he among all the sons of Israel. From his shoulders and up, he was taller than any other people. This guy was right out of central casting. This sucker should have been a political candidate today. I mean, this guy was made for TV. You know, now listen, a lot of you guys aren't old enough to remember this. They never used to have debates. Not like they have them now. But the first televised debate was, bet was between uh, Richard Nixon and uh, John Kennedy. And the moment Nixon came on the screen, he was toast. Because <laughs> he didn't have a face for television. Nixon had a face for radio. <laughs> I've been told that many times. You got, a, you, you got a face for radio. Let's keep you off television. I mean, you know, you don't want people vomiting. But Nixon, Nixon had that, those jowls, that big chin. He had that heavy beard. And then there's Kennedy over there. It looked like he just looked, you know, perfect. Guy just looked trim, fit, all that. Just looked like he had it together. See, in our age, it's all about image. Uh, what was it that McLuhan said in his book? The medium is the message. Everything changed with television. Saul would have been dynamite on TV. Because you see, he's a synthetic leader. And synthetic, TV was made for synthetic leaders. Synthetic leaders, can I tell you a little bit about synthetic leaders just real quickly? Saul's the epitome of the synthetic leader. They're real big on titles. They're real big on degrees, what schools they went to. Uh, a lot of them have never had a real job in their life. Is that not true? They never worked. They don't know what it is work. They couldn't run a Dairy Queen in Midlothian. <laughs> they never had a job. It's always been this or this scholarship or Fulbright or this or this or this. Those suckers. They don't, they've, never, they've never handled money. Never had a check. Never had to watch the balance in their checking account. Someone's always covering for them. Someone's, no wonder we're in trouble economically. They're big on titles and they're big on degrees. Here's another thing about synthetic leaders. They're very, very concerned with image instead of substance. It doesn't matter what's true. What matters is how they look. And as long as they can... So how many times have we seen it's election time, they've got to run the commercials, and so this guy who is the biggest womanizer in 12 counties suddenly becomes Joe Family Man in the commercials. How many times have we seen that? We've seen it to the point where we get cynical. But you see, he's got to look that way. doesn't matter what the substance is. doesn't matter what the character is. doesn't matter what the heart is. What matters is image and impression and what people think. It's all about appearance. That's the synthetic. That's the synthetic leader as opposed to the authentic leader. Uh, now, now, Saul, when I read this verse, let me give you a prince about Saul. Here's number one. He was physically impressive, but he was spiritually depleted. This sucker looked like he'd be, he'd be right out of central casting in Hollywood. I mean, he was, he was good looking. He, uh, 
he was, he was the tallest guy. He was the biggest guy in Israel. This guy was a stud. He could have been in the movies, and then he could have been, he could have run for governor of California. And he would have made it. Or governor of New York, or whatever the heck you want to do. Because you see, it's all about image. Not what he believes, not what it's how he looks. See, some guys just look like leaders, but they're not leaders because they don't have the guts, and they don't have the character, and they don't have the vision, and they're not risk takers, and they don't have principle, but they look like leaders. I got to move, okay? I want to rant, but I got to move. So he's going to be the king. Now, this is, I, got to, I got to show you this. This is kind of wild. Just real quick. Look at verse 3. Now, the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. I, I love these details. The donkeys were lost. Okay, so it's the day, you know, he gets up and, he, you know, he, oh, man, the donkeys got out. The fence broke down. Okay, so Saul's got to go get the donkeys. So Kish said to his son Saul, take now with you one of the servants and rise and go search for the donkeys. He passed through the hill country of Ephraim, etc., etc., uh, when they came to the land of Zuf, chapter five, or verse 5, Saul said to a servant who was with him, Come, let's return, or else my father will cease to be concerned about the donkeys and will become anxious for us. We've looked all day. We can't find these donkeys. Uh, he said to him, Behold, the servant said, Behold now, uh, uh, Saul, there is a man of God in this city, and the man is held in honor. All that he says surely comes true. Now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us about our journey. And he says, Really? There's a man of God here. And, and he says, yeah. And he says, well, I really don't have anything to give to him, as you read on. And um, verse 12, uh, they asked some, some girls, yeah, he, he's here. He's ahead of you. Hurry now, for he's coming to the city today, for the people have a sacrifice on the high place today. Verse 14, so they went up to the city. As they came into the city, behold, Samuel was coming out towards them to go to the high place. I love what uh, J. Vernon McGee says. He says, I know that the Lord has a sense of humor. Saul is out looking for the asses of his father, and the asses of Israel are out looking for a king. <laughs> now, Samuel was not an ass. But you see how the providential, it's just the affairs of everyday life. Oh, my God, the donkey's gone out. Yeah, they got out for a reason, because you're going to be made king today. No mistakes in the sovereignty of God. Oh, that's today... Uh, Samuel's going out to do his work, which God has bid him to do. All right. I'll go to 1 Samuel 10, 19 to 27. Got a lot of stuff here, Scott. Now here's what we're going to find here. This guy was big. He was good looking. He looked like a leader. Here's my second point. He was talented but he wasn't tested. You want danger? You want trouble? You get a guy who's talented but has never been tested in difficulty and never passed the test of adversity. Then you're asking for trouble. Uh, verse 17, I'm going to start of 10. Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. Uh, 19. He says, Today you've rejected your God who delivers you from all your calamities and your distresses, yet you've said, No, but set a king over us. Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. Thus Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. That's Saul's tribe. Uh, 
Verse 21, Saul the son of Kish was taken, but when they looked for him, he could not be found. In other words, he was the new king, but they couldn't find him. Verse 22, therefore they inquired further of the Lord. Has the man come here yet? So the Lord said, behold, he is hiding himself by the baggage. What? Here's this big, studly, good-looking, chiseled guy. He's been given a responsibility, and where, and, oh, and where is he? Oh, he's over there hiding in, along the bags. He was afraid of the task. Was he good-looking? Did he have gifts? Was he talented? Yeah, but he had never been tested, and he was overwhelmed by the responsibility. Never try to promote yourself. Let God promote you. Uh, Jeremiah 45.5, Seekest thou, King James, Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. How do you know when you're ready for a promotion? Now, if there's a legitimate promotion that comes up and, you know, you and your wife talk about it and, you know, you think, well, if I test, I'll get it or whatever it is, go ahead. Throw, I mean, study, work hard, good for you. But don't manipulate, don't lie, don't try to do this or bribe or do this or do anything. Just let God promote you. By the way, before God promotes, God tests. God always tests his men. Did Joseph know anything about testing? Oh, my gosh. Guy was tested and tested and tested and tested. What does James say? James says, don't be surprised by the fiery ordeal that comes among you as though some strange thing were happening to you. Earlier, he says, count it all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. A man who's never been tested, you may be talented, but if you've never been tested, you're not ready. And what happens is, he finally, the people ran and they look at him and they all see, and it's interesting because he's the new king. Verse 27, but certain worthless men said, how can this one deliver us? They can see right through this sucker. This guy had no substance. He looked good, but there was no, there was no guts to him. Here's the third point about Saul. And by the way, Saul would haunt David for years and years and years and years. We'll see that next week. Because Saul wasn't going away even though he was going to lose the anointing as we already saw when David was anointed. Here's another insight into Saul's life. He was ignorant of spiritual leadership and instruction. Notice, we've already looked at the verse. Do you remember in 1 Samuel 3.20, all of Israel knew about Samuel? You know what's interesting? When his servant told him about Samuel, and that he resided in the city, and that Samuel could give help, Saul didn't have any clue who he was. Saul wasn't even aware of him. You know what that means? Saul didn't go to the feast. Saul never sat under his instruction. Here, here is the spiritual leader of Israel, and Saul was absolutely ignorant about Samuel. So he was an ignorant spiritual man who had great gifts. That's why in 1 Timothy 3, when it talks about uh, the office of elder, one of the things it says is that when you look for character qualities in an elder, you don't put a novice into the position of elder. You don't put a rookie in there. Why? Because he's a rookie. He's never been tested. He's never, he's never been in the fire. He hasn't lived long enough to get miles on the tires. He's never got his front end out of alignment. He's never got blindsided by a pickup truck. 
He's a, he, he doesn't know what's going on. That's what Saul was. He had no interest in the things of God. But this is the guy they want to be king. Here's number four. He was disobedient and quick to rationalize sin. Look at 1 Samuel 13. There's a lot of stuff that happens. Saul actually gets a pretty good start in chapters 9 through 11. But his true colors start coming out, and he starts falling apart very rapidly. Uh, what happens is back in 1 Samuel 10, verse 8, Samuel gives him instructions. He says, you shall go down before me to Gilgal. Behold, I will come down to you, and I will offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you, and I'll show you what to do. Okay? It's real clear. Anybody can get that. You go down there and wait. I'll come down. I'll make the offerings. I'll be there in seven days. What happens is they got a skirmish going on with the Philistines. Saul decides to attack them in verse 13, and he finds out he's woefully outnumbered, and he freaks out in his panic, and he panics, and his men are beginning to go A-W-O-L, and he's in trouble. And you get to verse 8. It says, now he waited, I'm in 13. Now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. You don't do that. This guy wasn't a priest. This guy was a king. And he was disobedient. Kings don't offer burnt offerings. There was another king later on by the name of Uzziah, who was a man of God, but he got so proud because of his accomplishments that one day he went into the temple and he was going to offer incense before the Lord. And the high priest and the other men came and confronted him. And they said, you can't do this. And he got angry at him, and because he didn't repent, leprosy broke out on his forehead. Same thing happens here. This guy is disobedient, this guy is rebellious, and watch him rationalize his sin. This, this is classic how God does this. Because you see, he was being tested. Uh, so what happens in verse 9? He offered the burnt offering. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, guess what's going to happen? Samuel came, Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. Samuel says, what have you done? Saul said, because I saw the people were scattering from me, etc., etc., and because you didn't come within the appointed days, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Therefore I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself, and I offered the burnt offering. You see it? You see the rationalization? We live in a day of counterfeit repentance. There's authentic repentance, there's counterfeit re repentance. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart and a broken spirit. Right? Yeah. Thomas Watson used to say that... Uh, he used to say that repentance is the vomiting of the soul. You know what true repentance is? It's the dry heaves. You ever had the dry heaves? What a wonderful experience. <laughs> Let's stand and do that together. 
There's nothing worse than the dry heaves. You've already heaved everything up on your stomach, and now, you, I mean, you're just, you're, you're, just, you're just all messed up. It's the worst thing in the world, the dry heaves. That's repentance. That's biblical repentance. Is when you gut heave your sin, you despise it, you hate it, you wish you never had done it. There's no rationalization. There's no excuses. There's no putting it on somebody else. There's no minimizing it. You just vomit it. And this is counterfeit repentance. I'm, I'm, do I have time is the question. Um, I'm watching that clock because I have four zeros staring me in the face. Um, Go go back to, let me show you this in 13 because it's very important. Let me show you this. You have acted, I'm in uh, 13 of 13. You have acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your king over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as a ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Here's number six. His rebellion eventually led to divination and to death. If you go to 1 Samuel 28, you know what he did? He got desperate, and what did he do? He went to the witch at Endor. And God was very clear in Deuteronomy 18. There are to be no witches. You don't go to seers. You don't go to psychics. You don't go to soothsayers. So you don't try to figure out the future because, number one, they don't know it. And there's only one God that knows the future. And your future is in his hands. And you trust your future to him. Let those who suffer according to the will of God, to the will of God, entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. How long am I going to suffer? You don't know. But he knows. He knows exactly what he's doing in your life. So you don't go to fortune tellers. You don't go to soothsayers. You don't go to witches. You don't look at the, you don't mess around with the Ouija. You don't touch that stuff because God's against it. He says, you come to me for guidance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. That's uh, Psalm 32. God promises guidance for those that seek him first. But because he goes to the witch, she calls up. He deceives her, calls up Sam, and, and here comes Samuel. And Samuel says, because you've done this, we've we, we got to read it. 1 Samuel 28. Once again, Saul's in trouble with the Philistines. If you look at verses 4 and 5 of 28.5, when Saul saw the camp of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. He inquired of the Lord. The Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Why should God answer him when he never did what God said to do anyway? Why would you pray and ask God to show you his will when you don't do his will? Does that make any sense? No. God's not going to answer this guy. He wasn't repentant. Then Saul said to his servant, Seek for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. Behold, there's a woman who is a medium at Endor. Saul disguised himself. You've heard this story before. Uh, 
The woman said in 11, who shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel. The woman saw Samuel. She cried out with a loud voice. The woman spoke to Saul saying, why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. King said, don't be afraid what you do, for, but what do you see? The woman said, I see a divine being coming up out of the earth. What is his form? An old man is coming up. He's wrapped with a robe. And Samuel, uh, Saul knew it was Samuel. He bowed with his face to the ground and did homage. Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I'm greatly distressed. The Philistines are waging war against me. God has departed from me and no longer answers me, either through prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have called you that you may make known to me what I should do. Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has departed from you and has become your adversary? The Lord has done according as he spoke through me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. As you did not obey the Lord, did not execute his fierce wrath on Amalek, God told him to completely destroy them, and he didn't do it. So the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also give over Israel along with you into the hands of the Philistines. Therefore, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Tomorrow you're going to die. And they did die. It's a tragic story. This first king of Israel. You know what his problem was? This first king of Israel? He had no king except himself. The king of Saul's life was Saul. But the king of the king of Israel's life must be the Lord God, Yahweh. And that was the difference between Saul and the difference between David. It always comes down to authority. And ultimately, I guess it always comes down to who is your king? Who's your king? Psalm 115 says, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 103 says, his throne, whose throne? Our king's throne, our God's throne. His throne is in the heavens. His sovereignty rules over all. Is he not a king who can be trusted? Is he not a king that knows what's going on in your life? Is he not a king who can deliver you and save you and rescue you from your enemies and your critics and those that are coming against you? Is he not a king that knows how to make a way for you? He is. So that's a king we bow before. Let's bow our heads. We thank you, our Father, our Creator, our King, our Lord, for your mercy and grace and forgiveness. We are saddened when we see a man who refuses to bend the knee. We are saddened when we see a man who refuses to repent. Now for Saul, it's too late. It's not too late for us. The Bible says that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you that Jesus went to the cross for us and died in our place. We thank you that he went to the cross as our substitute and took our sin upon him. And we thank you that when we trust in him alone and call upon his name and believe that God rose, that raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So Lord, for those who have never called out to you, may they call out from their hearts tonight and say, Jesus, come into my life. I trust in you alone. Save me. Be my Savior. Show me how to live. I've been the king of my life too long.
And Lord, for the rest of us that have known you for a certain amount of time, every day we've got to put you on the throne. As we walk out of here tonight, may we put you on the throne afresh, we would ask in Jesus' name. Amen.